Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Chad sits down with Sergio Villasenor. Sergio is the founder of Elliot, an early stage and venture-backed startup based in New York City that is revolutionizing the online checkout process to enable sellers with a simple one-tap checkout across platforms. Before founding Elliot, Sergio spent his entire career in e-commerce, working as a software engineer at various agencies before starting his own consulting practice. As an entrepreneur at heart, he has also launched his own brands, the latest being Faux Freckles, a temporary freckle adhesive that sold in 100 plus countries and was featured in over 30 global publications. Sergio, welcome to the show. Ah, thanks for having me, Chad. So what brings you out to California? A mix of things. BD, so on the sales side with our company, Elliot, early Series A conversations with investors, and then just the food in the city. All good things. For sure. Let's take it back to 2017 when you were uh, starting this company as a solopreneur, right? You were you know, out in the wilderness alone. Uh, what are the origins of this company and why'd you start it? For sure. Elliot was really the culmination of, I think, everything that I went through uh, in my career. So my background uh, was on the engineering side. Uh, I was a self-taught engineer, so I didn't have the traditional path to being like a software developer. Uh, I picked it up when I lived overseas in Europe uh, from my flatmates in Barcelona. I was immediately dropped right into e-commerce. So I kind of saw the full spectrum uh, in terms of software development for e-commerce and retail and everything brands had had to do to be competitive and to be able to sell more effectively and empower their teams. And I saw so many gaps in silos with regards to not just the software, but the data and how people were making decisions. And I wanted to create a software that made it really simple for brands to sell, but on the consumer side, make it simple for them to actually buy, uh, which is why we took the angle of being this really great, seamless, frictionless checkout platform. Yeah. So I think the checkout process is a process that is a pain point for many e-commerce stores, right? It's uh, it's known and, and unknown, right? It's unknown in the sense that what is the upside there? Like what are e-commerce companies right now, in your view, leaving on the table? Yeah, I think when you look at e-commerce across all industries and sectors, and you look at checkout abandonment, whether it's online or in-store, I think 80% of checkouts that are initiated are actually abandoned. And when you think about that globally and across industries, that's a billion, if not trillion dollar uh, loss in opportunity. So I think making checkout like as easy as possible for consumers, shortening the, the path to purchase both online, making it simple for people to self-checkout in-store, building great experiences on top of that, is fundamental for them, you know, cutting down on those losses and making it, I think, checkout conversion higher and a better experience for their shoppers. And those numbers are huge, right? Like what would our economy be like if purchasing decisions were happen more quickly? Um, that's something that I don't think a lot of economists are asking. They're not thinking about it, I think would lead to a much better place, right? If retailers have more predictability, if, uh, consumers can make faster decisions, this should be a good thing, right? Are there any trade-offs you see uh, with this? Or how are you thinking about kind of like the, you know, the ethics of, of everything? Twofold, right? On, on the business side, higher conversion just means higher GMV. Right. So as, as a country and as a global economy, you're just stronger. Uh, on the consumer side, I think the benefits, making it easier and more convenient for people to, to buy what they need. It's a wide spectrum, right? Because on one end, you have just luxury items where it's like, hey, I saw something great on maybe Instagram or, or Pinterest or on, on a feed. It's like, I want that product and making it simple there. But when you make maybe on the lower end with CPG products or just simple produce, making it simple for people to buy everyday necessities in a very simple, effective way, uh, you're now giving them back time. I think time is the most valuable thing in this whole thing. So if you can eliminate friction points and make really mundane, cumbersome things simpler and faster to do, people get back time to do you know whatever they may want to do, spend time with their family and kids. And I think 
having more time is ultimately more transformative. Yeah, definitely. Like if the sharing economy and the recent tech boom or bubble, depending on your view that we're living in is any indication, it's an exciting time for this, right? It's like, it's a conversation. It's a product that has been uh, needed in the marketplace for a long time because it's clear that uh, consumers and enterprises, they want to buy time, right? But they don't know how to do that necessarily. So Let's go into your background a little bit. So you're, uh, you were a D1 football player? Yeah, I went to the University of Nevada, Reno. I played free safety there. So let's start with that because I think uh, whether it's in a formal league or you know for personal enjoyment, an athletic background is a commonality amongst a lot of different founders and salespeople and things like that. So what'd you learn on the field there and or maybe in high school or middle school uh, when you were playing sports? I think there's a lot of things that I learned both about myself. So I, I believe that athletics was extremely revealing in terms of characteristics, things that I did well, but also surfacing things that I needed to focus on and be better at. So I think for me, athletics taught me simple intangibles like grit, perseverance, um, being able to be communicative in a way that's not self-centered, but more with regards to the team. And I think on a higher level, when you play at, at a collegiate level or professional, you're so regimented. So you need to like time slot things a little bit better. So as an athlete, you have like weightlifting, you have, you know, maybe some advanced performance training, then you have class. So for me, I think athletics is a really great foundation for a founder, because as you segue to the business side, you find yourself allocating specific amounts of time to specific amount of functions. So for me as a single founder, being able to say, hey, from like 6 a.m. to 7 a.m., I'm swapping out maybe weightlifting with BD and sales follow-up. And then from eight to nine, I'm doing product. Um, so for me, I, I believe I was able to take the intangibles and that regiment and apply them to being a founder. And it's worked really well for me ever since. And let's uh, back it up even further to when you were, I think, acting as a bookie uh, back, <laughs> back in high school in, in the best sense of the word. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about that, you know, early business venture, because not all of our early starts are glamorous or media ready, but I think they're important to talk about. Right. Because that's how you got started. And it's it's a really cool story. So would love to hear that. Being an entrepreneur was something that I think surfaced in me very early um, and not just simply selling goods, but finding a way to sell them for the highest price, whether they were a product or a service and learn risk and probability, which kind of goes into that part of being a bookie. So my freshman year of high school is actually the first time I had ever really got in trouble. <laughs> um, so I got in trouble for running essentially like a bookie and I was taking bets. I think we had about ten to $20,000 of cash on hand and I think I'm only like 12 at this time or 13, <laughs> but I quickly realized that I can kind of, you know, create platforms. Uh, I can market them. I can tell stories around them. And I, I think a lot of that for being and starting a company was there from very early on and early stage. Um, I think being a bookie was just one way that I was able to like tell stories around like betting and sports or even politics. I think looking back on it and be able to run a good business and be accountable and, and, and yeah, think definitely. of finances and learn how to hedge bets for both those that were betting and, and the house. And I think what's so cool about that too, is it's the ultimate preparation to be a solo founder because you're in a sense, you're creating the both sides of the market, the platform, yeah. the marketing, the fulfillment, the customer success, all that stuff is on your shoulders. Right. And yeah. so at a micro level, you're having these conversations where you're learning these skills. Uh, a lot of people view being a solo founder as a, uh, uh, like a red flag. There are a lot of investors that think that way. I was a solo non-technical founder when we got our first angel check from Founders Fund and since gone on to work with other great investors. But that wasn't something that people said, oh, you're doing the right thing. You're doing a good job. That was something that people viewed as like a red flag at first. Um, so I would love to hear what are your experiences like in that space and what are some maybe benefits of being a solo founder that people don't talk about? Sure. 
I mean, just to level set too, like that we did pivot the company. I feel like Elliot, even though it's still Elliot, this is very much like my second company. Sure, definitely. I think when investors like raise these red flags for first time founders, I feel like it's a very valid concern. Right. You're going through something for the first time. Um, so aside from maybe being able to be a savant and do everything, there's so many new experiences that you're going to kind of go through that you don't know how to react to. And, and you're going to you're going to make mistakes. I know I made a lot of early mistakes. So I definitely I'm not insensitive to the worry that investors have. But I think it's somewhat it's marginalized on your second and third venture, um, because I think you're now better equipped and prepared for everything that you are going to face. So with that said, I think the red flags are valid. I think it's just a matter of um, have you been there done enough times? to make people feel confident that you can get through everything you're going to go through as a founder. And on the benefit side, I think just being able to move more nimbly. You don't have to go back for two or three conversations. I think that's an early kind of stage problem where it's like, hey, like we want to do X, Y, or Z. How do you guys all feel about this? We're so early. You just want to build momentum and you want to like show as much progress as fast as possible. I think being a solo founder, it definitely plays to, to that. But then again, on the opposite side, everything falls on your shoulders. Yeah. So one of the downsides to being a solo founder is that, you know, you have to run sales, you have to run product and everything that comes with both of those. And you have to also recruit and do the fundraising side of the business. So if, and this kind of ties back to my first point, if, if you don't know how to balance that and prioritize your time and figure out, Hey, no, mm, that that's like, I'm gonna stay away from that. That's more of a distraction. Okay. Let's prioritize this and this and have a better regiment. Sure. You can quickly fail. As you're going about building this company, what other lessons from your background and from your history are you drawing upon? Uh, I'd be curious to know. Coming out of the pivot, it was really just grit and perseverance. Um, I think when you decide to pivot uh, on the surface level, it's like, okay, that makes sense. But then you very rarely think about all of the different blowback that comes with that because for every action, you know, there is a reaction. And you know, the grit and perseverance definitely helps me get through the hard times because it's like when you're an athlete, you're going to get beat uh, and you have to get back up. And sometimes I know we would, we'd be playing on like national TV and you get beat or you get, you know, blindsided and you kind of got to brush it off quickly and, and just keep going. Especially when everybody's talking about it the next day and for the next week, you know. Like, oh, for sure. And I'm <laughs> rough. And I'm happy that I played in an earlier like point in the maturity of social media because I think back to some of the times that I had been embarrassed on the field, and, like had Twitter and Facebook and things been more prominent. I think I would have been definitely eaten alive. So that thing that's on the athlete side in terms of the intangibles, I think on the engineering side, being self-taught, I quickly learned how to prioritize new new things I had to learn. And as a founder, I think it's really important to, you know, be able to recognize where you're weak at, figure out what you need to learn and prioritize those accordingly. Being clear about your priorities and then not getting distracted, it's important, but you also have to be open to new information. And like you made the pivot, which I assume you're you're happy with, right? Oh, I'm extremely happy. But before you made the pivot, it was probably there's still a ton of uncertainty or did you feel had you uh, lessened the risk to a point where you thought, OK, this is acceptable. I know what's going to happen. Were you fully confident going into it or was there was there a bit of doubt? I always knew we would pivot. I think that inflection point to me was unclear mm -hmm. when we did decide to do it. There was so much stuff going on as an early stage company that we were also overcoming. When I think back to the early days, we started the company August 2017. And before that, I had kind of bootstrapped everything to start. Um, we took on some angel leading into our seed round, but everything was pretty much month to month in terms of cash on hand, burn, what we needed to build. So you're building the uh, the runway as you're taking off, which is not fun, but sometimes you have to do that, right? Yeah. And then, you know, sometimes product breaks or something. So yeah. for us, like I knew we would pivot, but it was like I couldn't give it much credence because of everything else that I was kind of 
taking on as a founder. And I think that not overthinking things too is a superpower, right? Like after you've made the decision, just acting and if, if you have to repivot later or whatever, that's, that's just what you have to do. I find that founders are very intuitive. I feel that the times that I've regretted decisions is when I've waited or I didn't listen to my gut. Right. And when I look back at good and bad decisions, there was always an internal feeling deep down that, hey, I know what I have to do. I got to be better at recognizing it sooner and believing in me. But again, I think founders are very intuitive to, you know, what impacts their business. So you've recruited a number of uh, really interesting uh, executives and experts in the industry. I'd be curious to know, uh, what are you looking for on your team? And then how did you go about recruiting early team members? Yeah, I mean, early team members, you know, being a single founder, it was like, again, those red flags investors have. I think recruiting is one of them. But I, I believe that, you know, you can mitigate that by, again, recruiting great, I think, industry folks. And being that we were an industry product for e-commerce and retail, uh, focusing on people um, within that. So we had recruited, you know, from Salesforce, from competitors, you know, names and players in the space that our investors were also looking at or maybe look to when they're like, hey, here's your North Star and what you should be striving for. I think now that we pivoted, I think this goes back to me growing as a founder is I'm much more secure and aware of where I'm weak. So I think if anything, right now, what we're building is, hey, like, what are my deficiencies? How do we fill those voids? And then also looking at what are the things that I'm doing that takes my focus away from product and sales? So looking to bring on an account management, a customer success team. Uh, and then before doing that, building the playbooks and infrastructure that they need to be successful um, and uplifting to our customers. So this is kind of like an industry related question, but I think it's a good segue. A lot of people think that buying from directly from a person's website is going to disappear or become not as relevant in the future. Do you think that the future of buying is going to be a platform agnostic experience or what's what's that look like? There's always going to be platforms and infrastructure that drive commerce because there's so many functions and things that go into not just selling, but fulfilling goods once they are sold. I believe that on the consumer side, in terms of the experience, uh, it'll be much easier to just buy products at will. I mean, you look at emerging technologies, I mean, and these things haven't been fully adopted yet, but like voice, AR and VR, these are all the, the beginning stages and, and I think the new frontiers to which where commerce will happen and where brands um, will sell their goods and engage with consumers. I believe as technology is more widely adopted, as we have you know, faster internet, more smartphones, the commerce experience will move further and further away from what we know today as the website and into these really emerging experiences where people are engaging with really great content. And I think too, in the industry, there are many people that feel Amazon is just the de facto large company that's going to own the space for the foreseeable future. However, there are a number of new entrants or newer entrants like Shopify and companies like that that are poised to rapidly eat Amazon's market share. Are there any companies like Shopify that you're excited about? Yeah, there's a lot of companies. And it's kind of interesting because I don't look at this as just like a domestic opportunity. Uh, when I look at commerce, a lot of where I draw inspiration from is actually in China. Uh, and looking at what companies like Alibaba and Tencent through their marketplaces and things like WeChat have been able to create a platform for and a lot of what's spun off. So yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity for emerging players, not just e-commerce platforms, but people that are driving what we had just spoke about, which is those engaging experiences to build truly unique and the next generation of what we call the storefront. Beyond that, like things like blockchain, all these cool things are providing us, I guess, new opportunities to drive and make that happen. Yeah. And I feel like so many uh, direct to consumer companies or e-commerce companies, however you want to define them. They're each building their own technology stack that is, uh, they're kind of leapfrogging legacy technologies in a sense, right? And so now they have access to this whole new set of 
low-cost SaaS tools that they can essentially turn themselves into being competitive with almost anyone, right? So what are some of the tools outside of uh, your company that you think e-commerce stores of the future are just going to have to run on or run on something that's similar to them? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And you're right. Like I think what we've seen with software in general is kind of a move from like the monolithic systems. We've seen like API driven and focused software kind of break things up into microservices. And what that allowed was people to build really great value added software for things like customer support, customer service. Um, that's a really great opportunity, I think, for these new SaaS tools to provide great shopping experiences. Uh, I actually just ran into a new software tool based out of New York called Paloma where they bring this really AI first and driven in-store associate experience to just something as simple as chat. So where if you're buying a luxury product, you kind of get to interact with a system that's like, hey, like, what's your size? What's your fit? What type of material do you like? Do you have any allergies? This kind of transition from monolithic, monolithic to microservices has enabled these type of tools. And I think it's going to drive that kind of next generation. So when you think about that, that's just customer support. Um, when you think about automating deliveries, um, making it simple to even return products. All these great kind of tools and systems are coming about now. Yeah, and I think that for every example you just mentioned, these are all things where we know what the current state of them is, but we can't necessarily imagine what the current state will be in 10 years, right? And so these experiences are good now, but how much better could they become? What's uh, any, you know, crazy speculations or wild predictions for the next 10 years that you have for the industry? I just feel like we're going to continue to buy into this this idea of convenience. And I think convenience and what's enabling it gets a really bad rap uh, because we see it's like, hey, we're tra- trading our privacy for more convenience. I think that's a very like one-sided view. Because people are getting back time in a sense, whether they, you know, you might be on a social network that isn't as good as serving up personalized ads as another one, for instance. But uh, what they're, those ad networks are trying to do is... Uh, help distract, inform, and then educate you in a sense. Like it's not, I feel like it's not an either or thing. There are a lot of companies out there that are trying to be helpful, but it requires personal data, right? And that's a an ongoing debate that's kind of raging at the moment. For sure. And aside from just like time, I think what time allows you to do is focus on you. Uh, I think when you have time and you can kind of remove yourself from everyday distractions and like the headaches that, you know, having a job brings, like commuting, spending four hours in a car and having that back. I think what technology is allowing us to do is have now distributed teams, you know, work from home. You have things that make your life simpler. And what you're, you're finding is I think humans are reprioritizing what makes them happy. And I think in the next 10 years, what technology is going to allow you to do is, you know, further find yourself. And the discovery of you, I think, is only going to increase. A big thing that I think people have a hard time wrapping their heads around is that that has to happen in the physical world. I'm a big believer that that will happen in a, digi- in a digital world. And I believe that a variety of things that I think are beyond just technology, but socioeconomic. I think even just when you look at earth, um, anything in nature, like what does not commuting help with the environment, reducing emissions? What does like working from home do? All those things have huge factors. So I believe that people will continue to adopt technology and convenience will allow people to create new worlds, maybe not even within the physical one. Yeah, definitely agree. Couldn't agree more there. Let's dive in to your inspirations uh, from a learning standpoint. So what's your information gathering routine look like now? Are you listening to podcasts? Are you reading books? Are you trying to talk to other CEOs, executives, investors? What's that information gathering routine look like for you? It includes all those, to be honest. I actually like to read. Uh, Whenever I have a chance, whether it's just laying in bed, I know I do. And the first thing in the morning is I read. So for me, 
gathering the most and latest and greatest, um, talking to insiders, listening to people that I look up to, but then also looking at other opportunistic type things that maybe have no impact on me today. But kind of going back to that point earlier, like you, you don't know how things are going to be 10 years from now. So right. I think for me, aside from just reading, it's, it's having an open mind, doing that reading and discovery outside of my comfort zone and reading things that kind of push me to look at the world differently. Any examples from books or, you know, your favorite books where you had to go outside of your comfort zone to kind of uh, maybe uh, get the benefit? Yeah, to that point, I think a book that really challenged me was a book called Psychopolitics. It was Neoliberalism and New Technologies of Power by uh, a Korean author, Byung Chul Han. And he basically challenged every, everything that I'm doing. Oh, as we all become more, entre- uh, more entrepreneurial, we're actually becoming slaves because it's like we're trying to work for this idea and belief of having something that doesn't exist. And it was a very like liberal approach to looking at technology and its influence on society. And more importantly, how we build and shape our everyday lives. I, I love arguments like that and I love considering them. But sometimes people forget that there's, I think, close to $10 trillion getting negative yields right now all around all around the world. So hopefully, you know, with more entrepreneurship, better valuations for founders, we can get to a place where we allocate that capital a bit better, right? Because uh, negative yields are not a good, it's not a good sign of a people that are betting on the future. For sure. And I think not just like reallocating, but like reallocating in a more diverse way. Definitely. I think so many categories continue to get investment, but we should be looking at new and emerging, maybe not traditional technology, but things that make us better as humans and not just like SaaS software, but things that impact (laughs) consumers' lives. I was just reading, there was a fundraise for like, I believe vices for like CBD and consumer products like um, like, like CBD yeah. that are like bringing even like a small peace of mind for a temporary period of time to, to humans. So I think as that allocation happens, yes, it's needed, but it's also needed in areas of focus that aren't traditional. Super wise words there. Sergio, this has been awesome. Thanks for being generous with your time. Sure. What's a question that I didn't ask that you wish I asked? I had just came from an investor meeting today and unlike others that were like, hey, well, like let's dive, in, like, dive into the product. Like tell me about your team. The investor I spoke with today, he actually just wanted to know about my upbringing and like he just wanted to get to know me. And we actually chatted for the first 30 minutes just about both his and I's upbringing. And I learned like a really unique thing about him that actually drew me to him as an investor, understanding why he did it and getting to know his upbringing and his relationship with his parents. It created a level of like empathy where it's like, okay, this person like is genuinely interested in not just this company, but you know, what drives me. And I think that's an important thing that gets overlooked because of time, people are like, okay, here's this checklist of things that we need to run by. But you forget to look beyond just the checklist and the people that drive the company. People aren't the product then. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah just like, or they shouldn't be. If anything, I think like that would give better insight to investors as to like what the future culture would be of the company. When you have a better relationship with the founder and taking time to just, again, go outside the norm, look beyond the checklist and just get to know your investment. Yeah, I love that. And I think there's a quote, it goes something like most investors ask about product and team and market and all the good TAM, all that stuff. And then the best investors ask about what was your childhood like? I found that to be true. And it seems like the people that ask that too, they're the ones that are interested in how you're doing, not necessarily like as a person. And they can have conversations that are personal outside the business, which inevitably, if you're going to partner with somebody over the next seven or 10 years, like you might want to have those conversations. Agreed. And I really think it's important because in life, when everything goes good, I think as humans, you can put any human in the room. 
under the right and perfect conditions, I, I believe everyone performs well. Definitely. But when you ask those tough questions and you get to know people, uh, you get to see, you get the insight as to what their true colors are. I love it. Sergio, thanks for joining us. Cool. Thanks. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.